I mean, but yeah, I mean, we could also just literally start from now. Okay. <laughs> Should we start from Let's now? Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so we're starting from now. Um, Man. But this is interesting because this is, this is, this feels weird <laughs> because it's so different from our normal format. Yeah. But uh, our formulaic way of doing it in the beginning. Let's see how it goes. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, the first thing that I wanted to talk about was um, light linking, obviously. So um, this is something that you and I have talked about for a long time, being the golden standard of how to light and how to render stuff in pretty much every software except Blender, right? And we've all always met a lot of resistance from, I'm not going to say everyone that uses Blender, but I think the general consensus has been that there's been a lot of resistance to something like light linking. Like, why would you need light linking? I think the most common example if I were to like paraphrase every comment that I've had about it into one, it's, well, if you can't do it in the real world, why would you need to do that in Blender? Right? Which is such an obscure one because like everything we do in Blender, you, I mean, you're doing thing inher things inherently in CG. You're trying to improve on, on, on realism. I mean, either you're trying to match realism, but even when you're trying to match realism, you're still taking things, trying to do things in camera that you can't, do uh, in camera and so light linking for me has always been this natural thing that it was just missing we just talked about right before going going live with is that product shots was such a big thing that were hard to do when you don't have light linking because everything gets affected by everything if you aren't able to light link and sure that's not realistic that's not how you would do product shots in the real world but in CG, we're able to direct lights and, and shadows and reflections in such a way that it just, it makes, it comes up perfect every time. Yeah. And so not having light linking for me has been this whole like, oh man, I've constantly been battling it and, and coming around, coming up with hacks and workarounds just to make it look like I've been able to light link. Yeah, I guess just to explain kind of what light linking is, because there have been a lot of people who were just asking about that constantly when we talked about that. It just means that one light can affect one object and one object only. You can include and exclude light or objects from lights. This means you have a lot of control. But I think kind of real photo shoots and and uh, and movie sets and such they have kind of been using light linking anyway like on you know, physical sets they're just spending a lot of time to make weird gobos and such to block out light mm. so that it would only yeah, hit a certain true. spot i think they did this for blade runner as well this might not be true i'm pretty sure it is for blade runner to like light up their eyes where they have like highly focused lights just going into their eyes just to give that, that like a that like weird ethereal sci-fi effect for that so now instead yeah. of doing that in cg you can just select an object and say only affect this light so this is a this is a massive one this there aren't in every single new version of a software there aren't that many things that allows you to do things you couldn't do before oftentimes new features are things that allows you to do the same thing but faster or um, it, it might implement some kind of library or something agx is a good example of that you could do it before but now you can just it's just natively built in but light linking allows you to do stuff that you couldn't actually do before if we were just like Morton was saying we we're just talking about this if, if i were to do product shots for for blender i would need before this i would need to actually use something like v-ray or something else like an actual third party engine because light linking is such an important one like 
you what if you just need one object to be a lot brighter or you just need reflections in a certain spot sure you could comp it out but that just gets incredibly complicated you can just click like three buttons and now you you can just artistically direct this i worked on freelance gigs before where every single object was lit with a bespoke light just because that was what the director of the shot wanted and if i couldn't do that he would be like yeah but why can't you do that my other 3d artists can do that this was, this was using moto back in the day and this was just when light linking was like made properly available in moto before that you i wouldn't have been able to do that job in moto i would have to use Maya or something else so big one this one yeah it was such a like i i can't remember a time at least after i got interested in lighting and rendering when i was using uh maya for example where i wasn't able to do it yeah right so when we started getting into blender and started and i started doing more lighting and rendering in blender it, it came as such a surprise to me that it was it wasn't a, it just wasn't in the software and so so my approach to light linking in blender up until this point has been to create like these small shadow catchers so i would use really small lights oftentimes i would actually use spotlights because spotlights were so spotlights were already uh a directed light you know it has like a fixed cone and it'll only send out rays right where the cone is so you could use that to maybe create some kind of rim on the shoulders and then have like a shadow catcher next to the face or whatever because you didn't want it to bleed over on the on the face or maybe there was pieces of armor on your character that you didn't want the light to hit so it was it was like some of my characters if you look at them in the viewport had like this entire silhouette of just shadow catchers everywhere in order to block out any unwanted light it was a real pain in the ass because if you without that if you it might work you're basically lighting for not just a specific shot but a highly specific angle so if you were to change the angle slightly of the camera you have to basically redo it because now the shadow catcher and thing just doesn't work you have to just build some crazy setup now you just click the buttons <laughs> so massive massive yeah. massive change big big fan i haven't used it too much but you've been you've been playing around that for the lighting scene, right? Like how how stable is it currently yeah. in in the released version? Uh it's <laughs> it's uh, stable as long as you don't have to create light linking. Oh. Then it's stable. Oh, only only that thing. <laughs> so only using when, it. When you're <laughs> <laughs> so the initial creation, I, I don't know if it's if it's because of I'm working in heavy scenes or what it is, but um, I experienced this book quite a lot, and I promised people that I would reported i just haven't had time i will do it though i will do it for real um when i create so the way that light linking works in blender is you do it based on collections right so you use a collection and you link or unlink that and whenever you drag the collection to be light linked that's when it crashes for me mm. uh, i'm sure it's an easy fix it just it just has to be done other than that it works flawlessly like linking, unlinking. Once everything is created in the collections, it's super easy. One thing that I really like as well that I didn't expect from this feature was that they do shadow linking as well so that you can have light, but they don't necessarily cast any shadows as well. It's in a way, it's kind of the same thing with light linking depending on how you structure your collections, but it's just another way to, you know, you just have more customizability with with your light linking so i i do really like that and then when you combine that with lights not 
in their in their light settings, not having to show up in reflections or don't cast any uh yeah, don't cast any reflection or don't show up in reflections and stuff, then it becomes really powerful because then you can really start to direct. Maybe you have a light that only shows up in reflections but doesn't necessarily cast shadows and you can really start to to mix and match. So I think Blender's heading in a in a good direction now. I mean I don't I don't really know from a lighting perspective what more I really need there. Like light linking was like the last big hurdle for me. One thing that I would think would be really useful for that is the current implementation of HDRIs. I think is hella clunky because you you if you, mm. unless you use in a node wrangler and do like the control T and you just set up the uh, yeah, material yeah. there or the the, uh, the nodes like you you don't really know how to do it. Like you you would actually have to Google how to set up an HDRI. And I and I, I when using node wrangler I know how to do that, but I I would actually have a bit of a hard time just setting up an HDRI myself without the node wrangler at the moment well in a lot of other software yeah. you just make a um like in maya and arnold you just make uh basically just a sky dome light and you just input a texture into that so that's incredibly intuitive but that's like it wouldn't really change the output of it like it would still be the same thing it's the same thing we talked about here with agx it, it, it's, it's it's a new thing technically but you can still get the same result it would just be it would just be making it a lot more user-friendly and i mean maybe that would be a good way to do it just an environmental light or some kind of dome light and plug in a texture to that it's cool that you have the freedom to set up an environment the way you do now it's just a little weird there are a lot of these things in blender i find that things that are is pretty simple things in our software i have to google how to do and i might have to have like just a screenshot something setting that up i remember in the beginning of before i knew about the road wrangler i would just do like a pure board with like these kind of little tricks how to do yeah. specific specific setups and such so i find that there'll be a lot of these kind of weird i wouldn't maybe i wouldn't even sure if they were going to call them paper cuts just like unrefined ux in it but that would definitely be one thing for lighting that would be be a big help for me but uh it's it's pretty refined now to be honest as as uh, as a software in terms of lighting and rendering yeah i think one of the things that we experience so we we both used 3ds max before and then we used maya you obviously used moto for a while and i touched it like once <laughs> so i can't i can't really speak to that but i also used 3d code in the past and while 3d code is a little weird i i will admit but the maya and max are fairly comparable i think but blender was always for for you and i like uh you could do the same thing but in a blender way very right so it was always like it was it almost felt kind of contrarian that blender had to do it you could do the same thing but you would have to do it differently uh compared to not i wouldn't call it a standard but maybe other softwares figure out a, like a simple way to do a things. logical way and, if you will <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i was i was kind of afraid that was going to be the same thing with light linking but i'm actually i'm, I'm actually surprised that it's just a straight up it, good implementation not that the other things aren't good implementations in blender it's just a lot of the time, I feel like we have to figure out, like you say, you have, you actually have to Google it. It doesn't come as naturally. Kind of like when you're using ZBrush. Yeah. Like nothing is natural in ZBrush. You literally have to Google everything. Whereas if you open up Mudbox, you would be able to sculpt pretty much without having opened the, the software before. Like I think for like in terms of UX there, based on what I've been mentioning so far, I think somebody could pretty accurately or pretty pretty quickly open up Maya without having really used Maya before and set up an HDRI. 
but I don't think you'll be able to do that with Blender at the moment. I think in order to set up an HDRI in Blender, and I think you you really have to know how to do that. Somebody has to show you the method for that because it's just so specific. So there are just a lot of those those, those weird ones there, for instance. Yeah, it's um, it's a welcome change, and at least I think you know they've done a good job with the implementation. Yeah. I need to report that bug. I'm sure I'm not the only. Now that it's officially released, I'm sure not. I'm not the only one who is experiencing that. But uh, I mean, there must be something in the in the scenes that I'm working with that triggers it because it's literally the first step in creating light linked collections that fails yeah. for me 90% of the time. So I'm sure it's like maybe it's highly specific to my scene setup or something. They would have caught it in bug testing otherwise. Yeah. Um, it would be crazy if the, if that had gone past it like yeah, yeah we don't see any problems with that like for me i literally have to close blender reopen it create the light linked collection within 10 or 15 seconds of my scene being open almost like i don't have enough resources to to create it or something otherwise it crashes don't know why that's and, the case uh, speaking of your scene what is the scene you're working on it's the lighting scene the new lighting hey. scene. The, <laughs> i guess technically it's version 3.0 but uh i think Going forward, we're just going to be calling it the flip normal sliding scenes. And they're coming out for Blender to, to begin with. And then we're porting that to... Arnold? Is it Viri? Arnold. Yeah, Arnold. Yeah, it's Arnold. Arnold. Only those two. The, the yeah. old ones used to be for Viri, for Max, for Moto, for, for everything we can get our hands on. And uh, we're not doing that anymore. It was just too much to maintain. Yeah. And, and now, with, like, I, was, I was not sure... About because we had lighting, we had the lighting scenes before for Blender. Someone someone converted them for us, and then we sort of started reselling that. But it still wasn't. It was a good product, but it wasn't. It wasn't the best version of the lighting scenes. Like it was, I, I mean, it was like an inferior version of the lighting scenes because you couldn't light link. Yep. You would have had to create a bunch of shadow casters there as well, which is almost impossible when you're doing it for a general purpose lighting scene. Because shadow catchers are good when you're doing one specific asset or character. And so yeah. with that version, you know, you would have a lot of light bleed on, on, the, on the floor where you could see, okay, here's an area light. It's very clear. So sometimes in your renders, you would just like have this harsh line uh, behind your character or behind your assets. We're fully getting rid of that now because of light linking. Um, and then obviously it's getting upgraded because of AGX as well. So we're able to get a lot more uh like deeper and richer colors into the renders compared to what we were before with filmic yeah should we talk about agx for, for a second sure well, for me agx yeah. is, is one of the really cool features for that i about a year ago we released a um a, co a course called character portrait Masterclass, and that was using zbrush blender and substance painter for the whole thing so that was a full blender production and during during the rendering when i was setting that up i just couldn't get it look right so i was i was experimenting with filmic and just didn't look right the, the colors washed out disable filmic so you just use the regular srgb lot and that looks awful everything just looks dirty and then somebody on twitter very kindly sent me a link to 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 uh, agx and so it's been for a year so you just had to replace filmic with agx so you had to go in and like basically delete filmic and replace it with that a little bit convoluted in the beginning, but once you had this had the setup, it was it was great. We were always hesitant to use AGX in tutorials. Like mm. we, we discussed that for the lighting scene Morton is working on now, whether we should we should use it or not, because 
you know you want to stick to as default as possible but the once we got agx set up it looked so much better right away like the colors were so much more natural the lighting was delightful it was just a lot more natural it, it just it's basically like a make nice render button but not just like nice in in a sense because that's entirely subjective maybe some people prefer the filmic look but it's a I would say it's objectively better because it allows you to have more control, more range and your colors, better control over saturations. So I think it's just a a fantastic upgrade, which 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 takes it from a like honestly with filmic, it felt a little bit like an amateur uh look in a sense, because you couldn't really control it. If you wanted something specific, it was hard to get. And before filmic, it was even more difficult to do it. But now it feels like a <laughs> yeah. you can get a proper professional balanced look out of out of Blender, which is fantastic. Yeah, I think one of the big things for me and one of the things that AGX excels at is has to do with with colored lights. And the, we, we just released a Blender 4.0 feature update where we, we I quickly cover that as well. But the big difference there is how uh, Filmic and AGX, they handle what's called collapsing colors. So once you... If you have a surface like a light that's close to a surface and getting closer and closer to a surface, if it's a colored light in, in Filmic, the way that it would work is that it actually sort of hue shifts the light. So it mm. changes the color and the behavior of the light, which is not how lights react uh, in the real world. At least that's not how humans perceive light. Right? So what AGX attempts to do is, is simulate better how the human eye perceives color and light. And I think that's why it works so well. So if you take some of the examples that I showed in our video is that uh, it's from the lighting scene as well. We have some more, let's call it exciting scenes where we're using colored lights. It's not just like your standard teal and orange kind of lighting setup, the, the Florence Academy lighting setup with like three point lights. We actually use some pretty intense colors and you really notice it in those scenes. Um, a good example would be if you're filming like a sunset scene or something in, in the real world, right? Once the sun gets to that part of the horizon and, 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 and the rays scatter through the atmosphere, you tend to get like this really intense orange and red light, especially on really clear days. In, in scenes like that, it's really hard to preserve your depth in your, in your footage if you were using something like filming. Right, because everything would just shift to orange, mm. whereas in our eyes and, and with AGX, the orange light, because it's, when it's close to our face like that, it sort of shifts towards white and not orange. So you get more depth by not just, it's almost like with Filmic, you have like an overlay of color. If it's an orange light, you just have orange everywhere. Mm. But closer to a surface, it would actually change um, Instead of being orange, it's more white because the light is more intense. I hope that explanation makes sense, but that's sort of sort of the difference there. Yeah, the the, the main point for me is just that it, it it's not even do you prefer to look or not. It's just it's just a more natural and a much 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 more balanced image. So it's also kind yeah. of an easy win because it's it's not like it's not a different color space like Aces. It's a lot on top of it. So it's it's much easier to work with. You don't really have to change your textures and such. You might have to, I don't sure what how they're actually implemented as in four, but you just had to go in and like just change uh, like if it was like a non-color or or like a sRGB yeah. or something. But like it, it, it it's not a different color space. So it, it's it's a much gentler approach to it. 
yeah, I think um, the big thing for me there, like to sum it up real quick, is just that I get richer, the, my renders are richer in color because there's more variation and, and I, I'm getting more depth in my lights yeah. from, from light to dark compared to, compared to filmic. That's like the big takeaway from me in that. And then also like it's a massive upgrade for everyone because now everyone using Blender 4.0 will just have better renders. I'm curious when or if ASUS will be like fully integrated as well. Like that's something I haven't really worked too much with. But if you're in a full production, you'll probably want to yeah. work with ASUS today. That's what we worked with that in at NPC years, years, years back, like 2014. That's when we probably started with ASUS. So that this has been used for a very long time. It's a fairly established workflow. You have this in Painter yeah. as well now. So pretty certain that, like Maya has ASUS as well now, like properly built in. So I'm pretty certain that that would be a pretty big upgrade as well. Like you can definitely install ASUS for Blender, but that's that's a fairly involved thing now. You're not just going to casually, casually just throw in some ASUS in there. Would, would it be the same as when we were manually setting up AGX? Like we just get the LUT and we create an environment variable? Yeah. Or is there more involved? I think, I think, it's, I think it's, it's similar to that. But the the way I would, when I've been playing with that, you have all, you know when you're setting like the non color and the all that kind of stuff in the list. Yeah, yeah. The list is is like covering literally oh, the that's whole right. screen to the point that yeah, you can't even see what's true. there. Like it, it, so you had to go in and you had to delete a crap ton of those from like a text file or something. All this is like very approximate knowledge, but uh, basically like it, you, yeah. it's not just as simple as that. But of course, in a studio setting, who cares? You have, would have a you would have a pipe and TD who would just set that up for you, and you would just have to install something once in the beginning. But um, it, it's definitely not something you could just plug and play with. And we would definitely not use that for Flip Normals because we are, we're much more mainstream in that regard in, in a very real sense. You yeah. know, when we're producing tutorials, you shouldn't need to change Blender like crazy. We all, I always try to stick to as vanilla version of as possible. That was even, we were even reluctant to use AGX for the uh, the character portrait masterclass last year could just because you had to install like a third party thing there and i think that's kind of nice as well what we do for tutorials because it means that you can just plug and play and you're not reliant on some highly esoteric plugin or something to to make it work but uh yeah sometimes it would be nice to just like do one where it's customized like crazy as well i used to do it all the time in maya and moto my setup was like non-recognizable and then we started with tutorials <laughs> and I just deleted all that crap. And uh, particularly for the Maya tutorials, yeah, I just went back to completely vanilla. Yeah. No, I mean, it almost feels like I don't, it's not as big, a, big of a jump for me as back in the day when I finally embraced uh, an actual linear workflow. <laughs> yeah. Like I'd been using V Ray for years. And at that point, there were a couple articles out where people covered linear workflows of how you know you you take your your base maps and you convert them to the to linear and then you and when you render it you have to like work in srgb all that stuff like when i discovered that the increase in range that i was able to get out of my images was crazy and you didn't have that crunched up look anymore things are oversaturated it's like this it's not as extreme but i feel like it's it's a similar thing that's happened to the blender now and without even people you don't even have to understand it and you don't really have to change your workflow because AGX is just selected by default. You just plug things in and, and things just work. When it comes to, to upgrades and software, like this this is the kind of stuff that I'm kind of a sucker for, to be honest, where it's almost like big structural things in the software. I get less excited about individual tools being added to it. 
so something like can kind of you know move, move gears here but like geometry nodes for instance is something i'm very excited about not because i really care personally about geometry nodes procedural modeling isn't really my thing but uh, when you have like node tools and stuff like that this this it, like it, it's like an ecosystem you're creating an actual ecosystem and like relating to like agx as well it's just like a, an overall improvement over the whole thing that just elevates the whole software elevates everyone's experience in it now if um if you need something highly specific for a uh, as a modeling tool, you can build the modeling tool now. Like without too much knowledge, you can actually build your own modeling tool that before that were, would require Python. It, it, it wouldn't necessarily require like fancy Python. It might just be a few lines of some code. But the barrier of entry to knowing a few lines of Python, that's actually quite high. Yeah. Like both the, the two of us, we tried to actually learn Python back in a day. And I think we're pretty tech savvy and I, I was never really able to make my own scripts there. It's just... It's just kind of difficult unless you're doing that, like, I wouldn't even say full-time, but, like, unless you're doing that on a very, on a very regular basis. So something like particularly the node, node tools for, for, for Blender 4 is very, very, very much welcome. I can't wait to see what, what that whole new ecosystem origin actually creates. Yeah, I think, I mean, when it comes to programming, you also have to have some sort of passion for it, like, to... To actually want it, I, I can't remember, sort of, I think I've attempted to start Python a couple of times, and it's always been like, that, it would be neat to be able to know some Python, but it's never been more than that. You know, I've never desperately had to sit down and be like, okay, now I need to learn programming, otherwise I'll die. You know, I won't have a job if I don't know how to program. Uh, so I think motivation definitely helps there. There have been times where Python has definitely been, been used, it would have been useful to know. But, uh, I mean, nowadays, ChatGPT helps out with a lot of those small tasks. So I don't know if that'll, that's ever in the cards for me. But aside from that, you know, now people really don't have to learn Python when it comes to Blender because now they can just use Node tools. And they're going to keep evolving. You know, this is the first iteration of it. Obviously, it builds on geometry nodes because that's, that's the basis of it. But from what I've seen um examples on twitter people what they're creating i it's like limitless you know as they start to refine the tools more and refine what sort of nodes are in there they at, at the end you'll be able to do pretty much everything i think when it comes to to creating those tools and then being able to share them create tool packs i i think it's a very exciting time with this sort of change. Like some of the cool examples that I saw was like someone made a, like a rope generator, I think. You're like, you're selecting two, two points on a mesh, run the, run the tool and it like just creates um, ropes between. And then with, with the ability to have the operators be visible in the viewport as well, you can like change it on the fly. Obviously it's, it, it, get, it gets baked into the geometry. So it's a, one time and then you've generated it but while you're doing it you know if it's the rope thing you could maybe control the number of ropes the randomness how much slack is in the ropes all this stuff is something you can expose to people and then they'll be able to tweak themselves and then obviously being able to share them and then tweak those tools and develop on top of those tools with even more nodes i think is incredibly exciting yeah, the reason I'm more excited about only the node tools than like the, the geo nodes themselves is because whenever I've been modeling something, I'm coming from VFX, right? And 
and our background there, it's always been model something highly specific. And modeling something highly yeah. specific, it's kind of the opposite of procedural modeling. If you need to model a bottle, you're not, you don't want to model 500 bottles of slight variation. You need to model this specific one. And for that, you just need good old school polygonal modeling tools. And um, this aids that a lot. Like when, yeah. when I learned that, the, the no tools were were actually destructive. I got really excited because I thought when I saw all these cool demos that it was all like this weird procedural things and in order to do it, you had to like keep collapsing a stack or like maybe import export or, you know, just working working like that. But realizing it's literally just a series of modeling tools. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, like we we're just seeing the initial implementation of that now and people have just got their hands on it. I'm very curious to see where this is going to go in... I mean, just the next few months. I think there's going to be a lot of awesome new tools and probably a few tools that you actually can't work without because that's always how it works. You get some weird rope tool or some kind of new extrude tool or something like that and it just changes your, your workflow fundamentally. So very excited yeah. about that. I mean, it's visual programming. You know, an example. Sorry, you were saying. You no, know, it's visual programming. Yeah, exactly. And And some of the tools might not be as obvious as others because... People coming into this without much, without that big of understanding of, of geometry nodes might look at this and be like, okay, cool. So you can instance some things and, and apply transforms and, and do, do a bunch of stuff. But it's, it's way deeper than that now because now you'll be able to do, you know, random selection on, on faces. You'll be able to, well, another cool example, this was from a, someone on a Twitter called uh, Passive Star, and he does a lot of this stuff with, with, with the node tools. He was, he created, I think it was like a flatten, a flatten tool, like based on your view or something. You just do, you select the faces and it flattens it. That kind of tool you would have to script before, or maybe you would select it based on your view and then you would sort of scale it with the scaling tool. Like you'd snap the scale gizmo or something to an angle and scale it from there. But these are the kinds of tools that people are able to create. I think an interesting one could be as far as I know, there's like one add-on that adds uh, edge flow to, to modeling tools in Blender, yeah. which is basically like if you have like a series of edges like this and you have like sharp edges in between, you add the edge flow and it sort of smooths it out. Right? So you have like this nice curvature that follows the, the uh, edges that are, that are surrounding it. That should be possible with no tools. And there's, there's just so many possibilities now for people to create tools they just need to get into nodes a little bit understand the math behind some of the tools or some of the nodes and then i think we're going to start to see an explosion of really incredible tools out there yeah and us not really knowing python if you give me a python script for like the edit edge flow tool i'm going to look at it and go like all right i can't really edit this i can't really modify this to any degree but if martin makes yeah. a, a you know if you were to give me a tool here right then i can just open that up and i can just change the parameters as if it i don't have to understand anything about code i love these i love these kind of like visual programming tools i think they're i think there's such there is such cool additions to it there's a lot of this in like general development as well and instead of programming you can just do node-based stuff big 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 fan of that yeah it was sort of what happened with unreal a couple of years ago i say a couple it's probably almost a decade ago now probably <laughs> but uh, as far as I understood, like they introduced some of the same things, like blueprints, I think yeah. they're called, and and you, you there was like there was a big focus on having less of a need on programmers and being able to visually 
program yourself and, and sort of cutting down on that time between artist to programmer and, and the artist being able to control more of it. I see this as the same thing. Like you, you gain a basic understanding, not of programming, but sort of like the syntax of, of no tools. And then you'll be able to create really amazing things with it. And then if you know programming on top of that, that's just going to elevate your game even more. But it, yeah, so it's, it's not like it's going to you know take any programming jobs there or anything. It just, it just means that there, the people who, like us, who would be able to make the tools, but we don't know programming, we could just make awesome stuff. Yeah. What else is, what else is like a big thing? I think, I mean, for me, Lightning and Geometry Nodes definitely, or Node Tools is, is up there. Anything that that stands out. To the you. snapping tool looks really good. Uh, that uh, that looks uh, really legit. I have already added that to our internal list of videos. I want to do. <laughs> I want to really make a, mm. just a video, quick video on that. We can even have like a maybe even a video on like um, quick like quick tips from it as well. Uh, yeah, just yeah. from Blender Four. Uh, one thing that this is like something that we aren't really well versed in at all because we're not regulars or animators but bone collections that seems to be a massive one for for riggers again not a rigger don't really understand the full extent of that but seems really 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 useful there also seems to be some updates with the bendy bones as well that the deformation is just much nicer so in yeah yeah uh, it just respects the the curvature a lot more which seems absolutely mass massive same with like preserve volume as well had something similar that one is Maya. that one's good that one is good yeah yeah like we had something like that in maya for some years and i'm not sure if it's, if it's the same algorithm or not but that made a huge huge difference with um, yeah with that so it definitely seems to be some be some nice rigging updates again not a rigger just important to have that but from talking to riggers and animators that's always been one of the key things people are talking about that blender just can't really do too well yet and i want to be careful with that because it can do it obviously you have beautiful animations and rigs done in blender but when you have like production riggers and production animators it's talking about like actually wanting to use blender in a production that's been some of the things they keep talking about has just been lacking it's one of the, the areas that maya is incredibly mature like the, the animation tool and rigging tools there are really good. I mean, vanilla, I have no idea how good they are, but there is a really good ecosystem around the anim and the rig tools and all the studios would have all that. So yeah, that that's that definitely a very welcome change because we keep talking about that all the time. Like is, is Splendor industry standard or not? I mean, what does that even mean, right? We listened to the CG Cookie <laughs> podcast we were on for more discussion on that. But regardless, it just means it's more like is adoption increasing or not and if there are just some barriers of entry and the the easier it is to for for like companies not even like big studios mpc is never going to switch to to blender but just for like medium-sized companies to do rigging and animation that's a huge huge thing if this update here is sufficient for that i have no idea probably not but um very welcome very much welcome to do with these kind of these kind of changes yeah i think without diving too deep into the whole industry standard thing again um we should probably make another video on it because it's always great content yeah. but think of it like this way studios and and provider like the software providers have spent decades building software together to tweak it so that it fits production blender has been outside of that sphere for a very long time and comes in as like 
the new kid on the block, even though it's been going, I don't know, for 20 years or something like that, maybe more. Um, and so it's hard to become industry standard when you haven't been part of, you haven't been a part of the whole, like the party. You haven't been invited to the party before and now you had to figure out how to fit in, right? I'm sure it'll get there and it'll become more and more popular. It's already getting more popular, right? With the release of, of 2.8, that was really when things started to go. It was 2.8, right? I think so. That's when it went crazy. And I wouldn't be as focused on the whole, is it industry standard yet or not? It's like, it's a popular piece of software that does some things really well. Use it for what it, what it does really well. No, I, I think I think that's key. Uh, there's so many companies, so many people are are too concerned with what what big VFX studios are using. I mean, who cares? They uh, the, if they use Maya or Max or anything, it's not a it, it's not um, like an acknowledgement or an endorsement of those tools. A lot of those tools are just legacy as well. They they might be yeah. terrible tools, but they they might be they might just be so integrated into a pipeline. One uh, one new thing that is new in um, in it, or not even new, it's it's a refinement. It's one of those things we keep talking about that there is a lot of like um, like paper cuts or like weird UX issues in Blender. Uh, they've uh, they've revamped the uh, a lot of stuff in the uh, the the main principal BSDF node, which yes. is awesome. That, I want to talk about that one. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I mean, go for it. Definitely. You know more about this than I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think an interesting thing, one that. From from comments that I've seen, I don't think I see an overwhelming majority of people liking the collapsible part of the shaders, but I, for one, really like it because it declutters my interface and my nodes massively. Because most of the time, you don't need 20 inputs. You just need color, roughness, spec, you know, and then you're maybe metallic and you're good to go. I mean, most of the time you really only need a couple of inputs. So having the most popular ones be visible from the beginning, I think is nice. You know, it's, it's one of those things. It's just, it's a nice, uh, nice upgrade. It doesn't change anything fundamentally. It just makes it a little more, more nicer to work with. But the upgrades in general to the BSDF shader, like using um, multi-scatter GGX by default, updates to, to Sheen and Coat, and the way that the BSDF shader works in general, I think are going to be great because it just allows you to create better materials faster. And they sort of, they just work together, together better with, especially with AGX now as well. Everything should sort of play nicer together. That's a thing that I, I, I really like because I use the shaders quite a lot and I think they're welcome changes. Yeah, one thing I'm always looking for in new updates is anything that relates to character art. So that would be like hair updates mm. or skin updates or anything like that. And there is a skin update to the shader here because they're, they're revamped some stuff in terms of the SSS for it. And now it says like random walk, a parenthesis skin, I think it is. And yeah. I don't think that it's such a shader change. I think it's a UX change where uh, before we made a video not too long ago on how to do skin shading in Blender. And honestly... It's a little bit convoluted, at least like pre this version here, where you just have to know how it works. You know, the um, yeah. the, the, the albedo color, you would just have to plug into the SSS color and you'd have to change the radius using like just a color node and such. So that kind of stuff is a little bit convoluted. But if you know how it works, like I know how the skin shading works in like how you make appealing skin shading in general, then I don't think the result is going to look any different. But I think if you don't know how it works it's going to be a lot easier to set it up now like it's kind of akin to the my feature request for um 
HDRI, it's HDRI lighting. You don't have to follow a tutorial to do this kind of stuff anymore. It's really easy for somebody like us who's been doing this for a long time to take things for granted that, oh, but I know how to set up a skin shader, so why would you want to simplify that? Right. And then yeah. you they actually do the skin shading update and and it's just a lot easier for everyone, including including myself as well. You kind of have like a bit of like the expert bias in, in the sense that you don't realize what it's like to be new to a software. And you just, everyone, of course, has the same understanding as you and a lot of the weird paper cuts and UX irritation, you kind of just gloss over. Like that's us with Seabird as well. There's so many things that it's so deeply baked into our muscle memory that we don't see them as issues. And then you see a beginner trying to use a software and you're like, right, they don't know how to save their project. Same thing here as well. <laughs> Setting up skin shading sucks. It's difficult. It's skin shading is just really difficult. But once you know the setup for it, it's honestly not but that hard so very very welcome change here as well but as, as far as i know please correct me if i'm wrong here such in the comments for people watching uh, i think it's i think it's like cosmetic in terms of like the uh, i think it's a ux thing i don't think it's a core shader thing but i, I could very well be i'm wrong just there. i'm just looking at the docs here now for random walk specifically for skin and while i don't think there have been updates to really how how it how it does the skin shading, I think there have been updates to how the values sort of played together. So maybe that is okay. that does define that it's been updated a little bit. Like what it says here is that the radius is automatically adjusted based on the color texture and the subsurface entry direction uses a mix of diffuse and specular transmission. And obviously there's the OR IOR input now, yep. which was there before for normal skin, but is now exclusive to the random walk skin uh, preset or selection if you want so i i think you might be right that there's nothing fundamentally new it's just a rearrangement and sort of like a they they're using more specific inputs with not having those like three separate colors for skin now they're using the base color instead um, in any case from my tests i've been able to i can't say that i've been able to do better skin shading but I've been able to more easily create nice looking skin with it. It takes less clicks. It takes less fiddling. I don't have to tweak values as much. It's been pretty plug and play for me in, in my tests. Pretty interesting with good skin shading because I'm doing a project now. This is in Maya and uh, I think the SSS is a little bit nicer there. That's why I do this in Maya. But it's, it's pretty shocking. Well, that's specifically for Arnold, Yeah, specifically right? for Arnold. It's pretty shocking to see how few nodes I'm actually using. Like I'm using like for the whole skin shader, I think I'm using like, I could simplify this down into like five nodes, basically for the whole thing, because the skin shading is all about, I mean, this is a crazy tangent here. Not crazy, it's just a tangent where it's just about the color maps or it's just about the texture maps and, and the sculpt itself. Yeah. So if that stuff is solid, people overcomplicate skin shading all the time. But yeah, very welcome improvement to, um, to Blender just just like UX, anything UX with Blender for me, because I find the UX to be weird in Blender. So anything that like, wouldn't really call it standardizes it, but it's not like it needs to be more like Max or Maya. It just has to be more logical. Essentially yeah, any feature yeah. I think should be, I think you should be able to use as many features as possible without having to watch any tutorials on it. Like you should should just kind of make sense how it works. Like again, the Seabrush versus Mudbox. You can open a Mudbox, start sculpting right away. In Seabrush, you actually need tutorials on how to use that bloody <laughs> software. I mean, we watch our own tutorials sometimes. 
just to get a refresher on how to do certain things because ZBrush is just uh, quirky. It's the weirdest thing whenever that happens. <laughs> I've had this a few times now where I'm, I'm watching one of my own tutorials and I'm like, man, I never knew that. That's a cool tip. And, and it's me telling myself that. Of course I knew that. I just, it's not like I've forgotten how to do a thing. I've forgotten that I knew how to do the thing. Like it's, yeah, yeah. Like that I even knew it in the first place. It's a really weird. Like we talked thought. about the other day. I, I was, uh, I needed to do something with origins in Blender and I hadn't opened up Blender, I don't know, like a couple of months maybe. And I definitely hadn't done any modeling. And like anything that had to do with origins, I just wiped from my memory. <laughs> First thing I look up, click on a video, it's you making a YouTube video on exactly what I needed. So thanks for that. The worst I've had is there where I do that and I wonder how to do something and it's my own tutorial. And the problem is there, I might remember the tutorial. I'm like, crap, that's the only documentation there is on the subject. I had this recently where I, I can't remember what it was I was learning, but my tutorial was the only thing there, which means that what I currently know might be the best knowledge currently online about the subject. I'm like, crap. <laughs> now you you know you get stuck <laughs> really easily. I want something better. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's why I'm Googling it, right? I already know what I know. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing, just quickly for the shaders. I mentioned Multiscatter GGX has, has received improvements. And I think... That combined with the new way that they're doing the coat layer, it was previously called clear coat because that's pretty much exclusively what it, what it was for. It's just another coat on top of your shader, essentially. Very common with like car shaders, for example. You know, you have your base paint with flakes and whatever, and then you have that clear lacquer on top that sort of protects and, and seals the paint. Um, that that combination of those two with multi-scatter now being the default the problem with multi-scatter before is that it was less efficient. It's more, it was more accurate, but it wasn't as fast rendering-wise as GGX. There were like some noise disadvantages, if I remember correctly. But now multi-scatter is, is default, and it's more physically accurate. Combine that with the new coat as well. You can really create some, some awesome materials in not a lot of time. And one of the examples that they gave in the release notes for coat is you could create like an iPhone screen, for example, where you have an emissive layer, because you can turn on emission while you're using code. You have like an emissive layer and then code because that's the priority of how it goes. And you basically have like a lit up iPhone screen with reflections intact without having to do any modeling. You, know, you don't have to model a glass screen. You don't have to model like the LCD underneath. You can do it all in, in the shader. Yeah, that's really cool. There are a lot of those ones. I keep using... Uh... The coat for for skin shading as well, like I say, uh, secondary reflection oh, yeah? layer, where you can have uh, a. Uh, of course, yeah. Something I learned from my girlfriend actually, who they were using that in her company, where they uh, like the way I'm doing it now is I'm using roughness for more of a base layer, so just more like a yeah. fairly like soft reflection, and then I'm using coat for like a really harsh, really like sharp reflection. So. If it might be like just to like enhance the pores in the face or for like really sharp things around the lips and nose. So that stuff works very well. So yeah, a little pro tip there, which I've learned fairly recently. It's actually not a bad thing to do in general because you actually notice quite a big difference in in sort of perceived realism if you combine roughness with with the coat layer, the clear coat layer. It just, and, and like Kenny says, where well, you have that variation in roughness, like they shouldn't have the same roughness because then they just 
it doesn't do anything but where you have one that's softer and one that that's sharper in general for most reflections it might not not be as accurate as how like i don't know a marble tabletop would would look but that extra bit of reflection i always think is is pretty nice yeah roughness is one of those things that annoys me a little bit because roughness is is a cheat because roughness mm. is is really micro facets in the surface it's not stuff isn't shinier or more or less shiny based on different places just like inherently they all receive this the reflections are still the same around them so it, it's kind of a cheat it's a necessary cheat because otherwise we have to simulate a crazy amount of things but when if you have for instance like a, a forehead that where a nose that might be shiny and you might have your cheeks that's not shi- not shiny it, it's because they're just a micro faceting and such and um like the stuff is stuff around your nose gets really stretched so there's less like folds and such it's the same thing if you were yeah. to have like a chrome sphere and you were to go over it with sandpaper it's the same material but now that it's going to be a lot rougher in certain areas because you've just gone over the perfect chrome server sandpaper same material but you're really just simulating like scratches or micro facets in it so i don't have a point with what i'm talking about now it's just kind of an interesting one that <laughs> roughness is inherently kind of a cheat that you're you are really simulating uh, the underlying structure of the mesh is almost like roughness is modeling to some degree and you can actually kind of not even prove this but use this in a practical way i do this for like for instance the character i'm working on now and uh, the, the shrek character <laughs> where you if you do if you do a roughness first for instance you just do your color map then you do your roughness then the moment you're adding like your a bump map or a displacement norm map on top of that the roughness changes entirely so you have to kind of do that first, like the all the bump and all the all the pores and all the micro facets on first, and then you can start to like modulate it with roughness. Most of the time, people can keep the roughness like really simple, like almost it's like gradients, and then you can break it up a little bit here and there. But as long as your bump and, and such is done, is like properly done, it's author is authored in a correct way. You can you can really get away with like a simple one. Then if you have a simple roughness and a simple like coat, like particularly like upgraded one and two and four here. You just get really nice and very simple shaders as well. The material can be very simple in terms of the actual nodes. One thing that I did want to just touch on is something that we talked about right before this. Is uh, I couldn't remember the name of the new engine. It's called Hydrostorm. Wow. That's the new sort of real-time render engine. As far as I can understand from the docs, because we weren't quite sure, um, it's meant to be used with usd like the usd format so when exporting um into usd uh i i don't like from reading everything in their docs there doesn't really seem to be a focus on that this is not it's not going to replace ev or anything i think that's why ev next is sort of part of 4.1 hydrostorm is is pretty much exclusively focused on on the usd format this wasn't something that we covered in in our update video either just because I didn't really see it as as such a big deal. It might be big for for studios if they need to do anything, um, but from what I can understand, it's mostly to do with previews when when you're working with USD. But USD also received a lot of improvements, which which is nice to see. Um, any sort of standardized workflow, file formats, anything getting updated in Blender, I think it's going to help it in the long run, especially with studios using it. So so maybe this Hydrostorm. It's also going to be beneficial to studios using that. 
I'm curious actually about about USD because USD is kind of a tricky thing to test as a single person, just as an individual. Yeah. Because USD is if 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 you, if you are just working by yourself, you are never going to need USD. USD is is um is kind of the what they're trying to build as a future of pipelines, which is uh, a software agnostic pipeline, so that you could in theory do mm. your animation in one software, your modeling in another, and, and the materials at another, and everything would just kind of flow together into into one format. The problem with that is that you have to convert a lot of things into a generic data into the USD format, and it's really difficult. The last few versions of Maya, for instance, have focused quite a lot on that. And and they're all trying to kind of play together. But I think it's still a bit far away and most softer for like a smooth and nice workflow. So I'd be curious how far away it actually is in Blender. Like if that's something that's actually production ready now. And I, I don't just mean like necessarily like a massive studio, but just where if you were to have just like Maya, Houdini, and Blender together, like how smooth that would actually work. Meaning, do they are they trying to present this as something that's ready now, or just like in the background they're working on this? Every version there are new features for it, and then in like two years, it's it's a complete package. Uh, generally, don't know. I'd be curious to learn to learn more about that. It's hard to find information about these kind of things because a lot of this kind of stuff is stuff 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 that's done behind closed doors in companies, particularly like this kind of stuff. This is the kind of stuff that really isn't sexy like usd it's it's like a <laughs> it's a it's essentially a file format and a pipeline uh, like a way of structuring a pipeline but it's so useful as well like it's one of those things that maya for instance is pretty good at. i don't want to turn this into a maya cast here but maya is pretty good at these kind of file format interoperabilities which is one of the reasons it also has like dominance in the industry and um yeah yeah it, it's just just important to stay up to date for a software with these kind of things but yeah don't know currently the state of that in blender no and i think it's one of those things where i mean you're not going to find a lot of exciting youtube videos about it no. i think that's one thing that people using blender and the community in general are really good at there's a lot of exciting videos about a lot of different topics but obviously no one's going to make exciting videos about usd and it's not going to matter to the average user even someone doing freelance and using it for for paid work USD is just one of those things that's going to fly under the radar and getting used in studios that, you know, the development team is going to focus on to make that interoperability better. But I don't think a lot of people are really going to focus on it or even know what it's being used for, to be honest. No, there's just no reason at all to to be concerned with uh, with that. It's, it's almost like if you're driving a regular car, you, you don't have to be concerned with like, long haul shipping or long haul trucking right like it's just a it's just an, a different kind of world for me one is personal the other one is like enterprise i'm looking at all the uh, new features here. as well like there really isn't a lot of stuff happening to sculpting painting and texturing this is kind of inter interesting one actually because this is something we've been talking about with the whole like the future of blender as well because some years ago now yeah. i guess like four or five years now when pablo was seriously improving the sculpting tools people got super excited because i mean the sculpting tools got a lot better and people now assume that because they're getting they're improving like crazy right now for i don't know a few months or a year or however long that was that this is going to keep going forever you know and that means if you keep going for three years maybe you're actually fairly similar to the level of seabrush he's in a you know fairly workable way but it stopped <laughs> so yeah the whole yeah i think it's really important to look at development of software to to like see where the software actually is at the moment. Don't 
like believe promises about the software not even like anyone's lying or being dishonest it's just it's really hard to predict where something particularly something like blender is going to go because they're you know it's open source the whole the whole sculpting room is basically one developer who finds that to be genuinely interesting so if that person stops working on it then the whole sculpting improvement is going to stop unless you find somebody else who's as passionate and talented as as pablo is for that so it's an interesting one with that right because it's there might be a lot of improvement in one area and gets to a good point and then suddenly it just stops entirely and uh it's never going to be the competitor in this case seabrush if if it keeps going in that direction as well so yeah just an interesting interesting part when it comes to the development of that it's also hard to for like the blender foundation to just allocate money for sculpting improvements because you need to be kind of a special person to be able to do that kind of stuff it's not just general modeling tools you need to i think in order to develop good sculpting tools you need to understand sculpting to some degree or at least have somebody very close to you who can like properly test stuff right away yeah i think that was what was so cool about pablo was he was actually a good sculptor and a good 3D artist as well, as well as knowing programming. I don't, I never kept up with this. I don't know why the development really stopped. Do you, do you know? Maybe they just yeah. ran out of ideas or he was on to other things. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm generally not sure. I knew there was a little bit of, a uh, little bit of like drama around that when, when he left, but I'm generally not sure what that was about. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah, pretty sure he's out, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay. Because that yeah. would have been would have been fantastic because the tool the sculptures yeah. are feels they feel a little bit like half half done at the moment like you can definitely do a lot of things but there's a lot of stuff that's just like just missing there same with like um they feel a little like a uh, mud boxy yeah you know yeah they a little do. a little soft not as not as crisp as seabrush yeah same with texture painting as well i'm, I'm genuinely curious where that's going to go because the texture painting in blender is so so simple at the moment to the point that I don't think you have layers like it's it's so basic that i'm wondering why it exists at this point i mean i'm sure it's like mm. a it, it can be handy once in a while like for instance maya you can paint very simple texture maps so it can be handy for like if you need to do i don't know weight painting or you know something like that or like if you're working with hair you can paint some simple maps there but you wouldn't use the paint tools in maya for anything like serious so i'm curious why it exists why they exist in blender Maybe it's it's kind of handy to be able to just like paint something in 3D once in a while, but um, yeah, I'm curious if they're gonna like actually develop those further or if uh, they're just gonna be be basically dormant because there there really isn't uh, like there are no improvements in this version to to actual texture painting whatsoever under the like sculpt paint and texture. There are two improvements to vertex painting and two to sculpting, but they're they're tiny. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I've experienced as well in this community is this um, over-reliance on wanting to use one software, one piece of software for everything. And while that can be cool because you can, you know, consolidate every in, everything into one package, it's oftentimes not the best way to go about it because there are reasons why we have specialized tools. So take something like texture painting, for example, the amount of improvements that Blender would need to implement in order to match something like, I mean, they would never be able to match something like Mari. The, just the pure data that Mari is able to handle 
Well, it's maybe something like Substance. Substance is so complicated and complex now with what it can do. It would take a massive amount of development to get those same features into Blender. Sure, you might be able to get some of it in there, some of the procedural stuff with layering and everything, and, and, and you could make a 20% version, but then what's the advantage of using the 20% version versus like the 100% one? Free versus paid. Sure, you could use it for some projects, but there, specialized software just exists for a reason, and, and it's okay to use that um, for, you know, when the job calls for it. Yeah, I had a, I had a request some like last week, I think, for if, I, if we could make a whole like masterclass using Blender for creating a whole industry level. I think this was a Digidouble, like uh, basically a competitor to the human course that CG Cookie has made. And mm. I couldn't in good faith do that. We'd done like one the character portrait masterclass we talked about before, where it, it, it does use Blender as the main tool, I suppose, as the main 3D software, you know, the retop or UVs, all that kind of stuff is done there. But not even main tool because the majority is spent in ZBrush but I wouldn't I wouldn't I couldn't do the whole thing in like in Blender the the sculpting I could kind of maybe take it a bit close-ish but it wouldn't be as close any kind of poor right. detailing or anything like that I absolutely could not do to the level I can do in in Painter and ZBrush and yeah it, it's just just not there particularly like texture painting like that would really like for sculpting and, and retop and all that kind of stuff it, could kind of do it but for anything to do with texture painting i could not in good faith actually create that so if you're seeing a texturing course from us that would be a, a very basic version of how to do something it would be a very constrained thing where we're using it for strength but i i could not in good faith make something for the full thing because it's, it's just not there and that's fine right <laughs> use painter for it painter is, is still yeah. fairly inexpensive compared to like a full texturing like full texturing software today. I think one of the, it's, it might seem silly, but I think a nice one is, again, it doesn't add, actually, no, that's a lie. It does add some new things, but it's the native implementation of OBJ for import and export. Oh yeah, definitely. It's no, long, no longer an add-on. Now it's a native, so you don't have to enable an add-on. But one of the things that's really cool about it is that they've updated some of the parameters uh, when it comes to grouping, you can import and export based on different kinds of groups in your OBJ, like material and like vertex groups, different kinds of smoothing groups as well, which makes it a lot easier to, to work with complex models if you're sticking with OBJ. And most of the time, just because I'm lazy, I'm just using OBJ. I should really be using FBX, but you know, sometimes you just, and OBJ is easier. Yeah. And, and being able to very efficiently separate your, your, uh, your model into the correct parts, into into the correct groups, is is actually pretty big for for me personally. But also just like uh, what they're writing here, which I haven't done extensive tests on this, but they're saying that there is significantly better in performance because of this yeah. this change as well, and that's very much welcome. Now, if they could just have the select uh, export selected tag <laughs> on by default, <laughs> yeah. that, that is, is annoying. Oh. You know what they should do is if anything in the scene is selected and you press export OBJ, have that box be selected. Yeah. I feel like that would be that would make sense. Or or either either that or it should be it should be selection by default. And then you could have a 
a checkbox to say export entire scene. Because I have never, ever needed to export everything from my scene, ever. It's always like certain parts and, and like if I needed it, cool, I could just select everything and export. But that thing has cost me hours of like things crash or that it's just stuck for a while because it's trying to export everything. That is a frustrating thing that's not default. Yeah, there are some there are some weird ones like that. I mean, in Maya, they solved it in a, maybe not the most elegant one, but it's like export selection. It's a separate thing. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, it might not be the best either. I'm just annoyed at that one every single time. When <laughs> working on a project, time. the first export is always wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've done it so many times now. I, I'm, I pretty consistently remember, but it's like I've been abused into having to remember this. It's just not, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we, we covered really most of the, most of the, the features now, I think. Is there anything else uh, in terms of features uh, we should talk about? I know that a couple of people talked about just core, core improvements in Blender. It's not something that I've really looked into. So, but I've heard that, you know, some performance changes uh, here and there mm. to, to Blender as a whole. I don't know what they are, but I'm sure that's great. <laughs> um, one thing that we talked about before starting this was um, metal support for macOS. Uh, I mean, I don't really have a lot to say on the matter. It's more like they're going away from OpenGL and now they're fully supporting Metal, which is great. So, you know, I, I want to test that out on on my Mac as well, just to see what performance is like. It's not going to be, it's not going to match what I have on my desktop, but being able to do things natively in Mac OS with good performance is definitely something that I think is is a good change to to have. One video I want to make in the future is how do you work with a uh, with blender on the macbook because that is a pain in the ass like it's oh, just from like uh yeah. like you you obviously need a mouse or something a trackpad isn't just great but just how do you actually customize it I kind of have a setup yeah. for it but like you just need a tutorial but I, I guess we could kind of then talk about like where do you what do you want like what, what kind of feature requests do you have in in this uh like if you if you were like absolute mm -hmm. ruler of the Blender Foundation, and you had unlimited money. I mean, they, they kind of gave me my biggest request, which was light linking, <laughs> you know? So I've been on that since the day I opened Blender. Um, hmm, that's a, that's a very good question. I think... Um, I, I've seen... It's a bit conflicting with this, but, but performance in in complex scenes i think blender still struggles with not not having one object being subdivided to like five million but having a lot of objects in the scene mm. i find the performance isn't as great as i would hope for so maybe an overall performance boost with complex heavy and a lot of models if if that was something that could be worked on i think that would be that would be great yeah yeah what about you i would hire a ux designer and mm, instead of fixing ux kind of one bug fix at a time and like kind of unifying things here and there just zoom out have somebody who might not even be a 3d artist look at this maybe not be fam that familiar with the software and just being like okay yeah, how do we yeah. make this logical to the point that you can you can operate the software without crazy tutorials 2.8 was a massive one there like they, they they actually broke a lot of things i mean to the point that 
unless you're familiar, really familiar with Blender, you can't really watch any any tutorials from before, like summer of 2019. Anything 2.8 and, and, and earlier, you, you actually can't watch it because the UX is so different. So they've done it before, but th- yeah. it, that still felt like a bit of a, it was a massive improvement, but it still feels quite far away from just a logical software. So I would definitely do yeah. that. Uh, and then just spend a lot of time on, on like smaller things, like legit, probably my number one request is I want to be able to put objects in the outliner in an arbitrary order. You can't do that. Oh, that is actually yeah, insane. Sorting there. Yeah. You can't sort your That's items true. in the same way. You can sort collections. So you can you can move collections up and down. But if you want like 10 models to be in the just an arbitrary order, basically just want them to be in the order you want them to be, you can't do that today. You have to put them into collections and then you have to move the collections around or you have to like give them alphabetical names yes. which is which is actually insane when i learned that when i moved to blender i actually couldn't believe that and still hasn't been fixed they've done some ux improvements here and there to the outliner but that one that one is such it's such a weird i'm one. wondering if if you were to do that if you would have to because it's fundamentally different from how something like maya has the outliner right that is your files are there. You can move them however you want, structure them, group them. If you would need to introduce like a different view, like an actual outliner view, because it conflicts, I think, with the way that the outliner um, or whatever it's called in Blender is is structured. I don't even know if it's possible in, in there. But why can you do it with collections? Right, you can move collections, but like it's just visual. Right, everything is still like if you go into your Blender file, everything lives there. Yeah. But with the collections, it's like you can move collections, but it's visual. It's not; they haven't actually been moved. They're still there. Yeah. They're just visually moved. Um, yeah. Whereas in Maya, you group things, so they're sort of like yeah. they are in a hierarchy now. I just want to be able know. to move things up and down. Like we we had this before, where we had to <laughs> yeah. do like from doing a tutorial, for instance, a bit of a specific case, but this is something you do all the time. But like in general, right, moving things up and down. But stuff goes into a, um, like you want to show feature A and you have the first model and it has a bridge tool. Feature two has the extrude tool. And you just kind of want to move them up and down based on the order of things. Now we have to add zero one, zero two in front of it. Yeah. That That is just very annoying. So that would be <laughs> kind of my thing. But also UV tools. Like the UV tools are so underdeveloped in Blender at the moment to the point that it's it's very frustrating to to work with that. Yeah, I don't I don't use them ever anymore like it's not a series of bugs you have to fix or just improve the ux slightly here and there like for me it's 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 it, it's actually kind of an overhaul to the kind of what happened with maya like when they introduced the, uh, the modeling toolkit tools there where it just improved yeah so much in a, in a very short amount of time so for for me it's not just a oh just change this feature over here and there it it's one of those if you if you're working with with like more for conventional software for UV mapping, it's f- probably going to be fairly standard how you UV map. You probably going to click on a model, select some seams, maybe just hit un- uh, unfold, and you just have the unfold just done. But in Blender, you have to wrestle with like sync selections and such. And what if you want to see the UVs at the same time as you want to see the uh, like you actually want to see all the UVs. Well, now you have to select them all in the viewport. Oh, but you can use sync selection. Yeah, but that that has tons of issues as well with that. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't understand why. Like this is a solved issue. Like there is no. Like, Blender is 
where ZBrush is for sculpting in terms of UX weirdness, in terms of UVs. Like it's, it's just something that doesn't have to be particularly complicated or there isn't a benefit to its weirdness. It's just, it really just feels like it's legacy weirdness. And that's maybe it's the same thing as with with sculpting, you know, where you would need someone that's passionate enough and knowledge knowledgeable enough about UVs in order to do a, a better implementation. Yeah. And then that developer would maybe instead make something like Rism instead or yeah, like in the case exactly. with like Pablo, like he uh, I, he made like the iPad app, a cozy blanket for Haritopo. Like, you know, they, they might just instead do something like that. That is more of a commercial yeah. thing, which I, you know, I of course understand you're spending all your spare time building, working on open source versus working on something like, like with Nomad, right? Like the sculpting app for iPad, which is, is a commercial thing. Yeah. I, I, I get you ha- that, that that's, that might be a lot more appealing than, than open source. One thing that, that was updated though, that I remember is that you, you can now export your UVs, like, like an image of your UVs in a UDEM format. There we go. Nice. Update. There you yeah, go. That's uh, that's really useful if you were in 2005, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember I remember seeing that update. And yeah, there you go. I haven't needed to that's... export out an image of my UV, like a snapshot of my UVs in a very long time. That's one of the things that with UVs, they, they beca- it became a lot less important uh, to some degree after painting became more, like 3D painting came around. Of course, you still have yeah. to optimize it. If you're a game artist, like if a game artist is watching this, they're going to be like screaming, screaming like crazy now because <laughs> obviously performance there is important. But before you, you had to spend so much time on your UVs, but now you just paint on a model. Like seams, you don't really have to think too much about where your seams are placed. I mean, particularly when film for film characters, I would have seams all over the face because you kind of had to have so many UDMs. Maybe the whole face was like 10 UDMs. You can't hide seams. You're gonna have a seam, like cutting the eye in half. Right? You just you just need to have seams there. But that's not an issue because you don't actually see the seams. So, yeah, that's that's definitely less of an issue uh, today. But you're still in good yeah. UV tools. You just need that. For the um, character portrait masterclass, I, I did like the initial seam selection in Blender, and then I exported to ZBrush and did the uh, UV master unfolding there just because that is the unfolding is just I just think is much stronger in terms of like a, in a fairly objective manner I think it's just the unfolding is just just better but uh, that's my general workflow as well I mean get my seams uh cut marked whatever you want to call it in a 3d software and then get it into zbrush and and unwrap it there because it just does really really well actually that reminds me we didn't we look at something at some point with the with UV Master? Wasn't that coming to Maya or something? Am I misremembering? I have no idea. Yeah, uh, it I'm might not. be serum, serum Mesher coming to Maya. Oh, because that right. uh, the, yeah, the, okay. uh, the algorithm for Serum Mesher isn't made by Pixelogic. It's made by, right. I think it's a French person or company or that might not be true yeah, and yeah. then it's like licensed for i don't know licensing terms but that 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 definitely exists for for my i'm pretty sure it exists in blender as well don't quote me on that but as a as a third oh, cool. party plugin but i mean the case yeah. in, in maya because they they acquired a really good uv tool for that and they yeah. and i'm pretty certain the developer of that tool is the guy who went on to make rism and that's why rism is so good because they took the best <laughs> tool they had uh, the Maya UV tools are fantastic. Like, they're really, really good. And then they improved upon them and made it a standalone software. <laughs> like that's uh, 
that's clever that's a good one so if i mean if yeah. i was using mapping like seriously today if i was doing that a lot i would just be using rism like if i was i think my perfect modeling software solution today would be like if i wasn't using maya i mean i just use maya for kind of legacy reasons to be honest it's not like that's the best tool uh if i was if i was didn't have maya i would probably be using blender for modeling and then topogon like new version of topogon for um for topology and then rism for uvs and then you have a very affordable suite like Topogon is like hundred and twenty five dollars or something. Rism isn't crazy expensive compared to at least you know the time you would save on that. And then you have like a legit yeah. solution for that for modeling. And then you have of course Seabrush for for sculpting. Like th- there wouldn't really be anything that would be like stronger than that. I think. I mean Blender is 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 particularly strong in modeling as well. That's one one the reasons yeah. a lot of people are switching to Blender as well. I think it's not just because it's free it's because it's actually a legit good modeling tool uh very much rivaling its its competitors there so that's awesome to see and and i would say look dev as well yeah. you know with with all the improvements uh, being able to live preview things with cycles is is a game changer for me i do everything uh with cycles and and gpu rendering in the viewport everything because it's just it's just too good i find it to be so intuitive to look dev in in cycles i I still find compared to arnold that arnold has more advanced features but for Mm -hmm. a person (laughs) as an individual most of those features you don't really need if you were to look at the list of all the ai nodes you would have in arnold it's insane and it's so specialized and i'm sure it's all made in the fires of efx and that kind of stuff but it's also very clunky to work with if you being able to do like even looked up in in eevee as well as what i'm doing for actually intro to mari course we're working on where you can just just import your maps and you can just see it really well in Eevee. Of, of course, it's going to look better in Cycles. Not that much better, though. But you can just preview it. You can kind of just get a general, see what the general spec response is. You can just see if the if the UDIMs are working correctly. You can see if the general texture, tone, and and color space stuff is, is working. And that's fully real-time. Like, just being able to have Eevee for LookDev is, is actually a game-changer in, in that regard. It speeds yeah. it up so much. Because the majority of the time I'm doing LookDev, I'm not really... Just doing like changing an attribute and rendering or like, you know, doing the really, really fine stuff. A lot of it is just trying to, is the material working or not? <laughs> like debugging things. And that is so much faster in, in Cyclos and, and, and in Eevee, particularly with GPU rendering. Mm, 100%. Um, I don't really think I have more to add to this uh, massive Blender update. <laughs> Do you? Is there anything no. specific you want to talk about? pretty sure that we are at the end of that i mean it's a cool update really really yeah, cool stuff very, very exciting to see where the node tools are being taken that that is kind of an unknown because that that's not just a, by itself that feature doesn't really do much it's where what the community right. does with it so that 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 remains to be seen but the people in the blender community are absolutely crazy when it comes to this stuff I, i'm pretty certain you can bet a lot of money that in six months there's going to be a lot of awesome stuff <laughs> coming from yeah, that yeah. as well and um personally i'm excited about the um the uh, light linking because i mean we we've been kind of waiting with the getting the um lighting scenes the flip moments lighting scenes out because we really needed light linking <laughs> for that to work yes so i can't wait to get that out as well for people cool release new um uh, new new tech to play with very excited all right, that uh, I think that about wraps it up, and uh, I have nothing more to add either. So, 
we will see you in the next podcast or video, yeah. which uh, I'm not sure when we do another one. Maybe next week. Probably. Probably. Cool. See you guys soon.